But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? And reading from the New Testament in the letter of John, the first letter of John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. May God bless to our understanding the reading. From his holy word. Amen. It has always been the way of people to question God. God, why aren't you doing this for me? God, how could you let something like this happen? Or where are you, Lord? In our moments of pain, in our moments of frustration, we do this, don't we? Sometimes we question God just out of raw anger because we're mad. Uh, we call God into account for what makes no sense to us. I remember in uh, another church I was pastoring, a very young woman in her 20s died suddenly, just like that. Uh, And uh, she was a a new Christian, an emerging Christian, a a single mother, uh, living out her Christian faith in a family that did not support her in that. I remember being at the funeral home before that service, and a young man who I didn't know came up to me with... uh, Tears in his eyes, anger in his voice, and peppered with a couple expletives, asked me how God could let something like this happen. And it wasn't a very long conversation because I didn't have a lot to answer him with. Sometimes we question God out of anger, but sometimes it's not out of anger. It's just because we don't see, we don't understand why things are happening. And God has no problem with our questioning I don't think when when we're seeking him, when we really are trying to follow him attentively, God is big enough to handle our questions. Think of Job and David, two excellent questions of two excellent examples of people who questioned God really hard. Think of Jesus on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? But when we separate ourselves from Christ, when we separate ourselves from his people, when our commitment is small or non-existent, I think we stand on very shaky ground when we want to ask why. And 
when we accuse the Lord of not doing what we want or what we think that God should do. If we're going to grill God, I think we better be on, uh, I, I think we better be in a steady relationship with him. And that's really the message of the little book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi is filled with questioning of God. It is as if the people of Israel are putting God on trial. It is as if they're taking God to court. Now the book begins with the Lord telling his people, Israel, of his love. And he says, I have loved you. And the sense of the, of the word in the Hebrew, biblical Hebrew language is, I have loved you and I love you still. And right away, God is put on the stand as Israel responds, how have you loved us? I mean, God, really, tell us how you have loved us. What have you done for us lately? You see, Israel had been hearing sermons from prophets for many, many years about a glorious kingdom that God was going to bring and an anointed one and a Messiah who God was going to send. Yet none of these promises seemed to be fulfilled. And they looked around and their crops weren't very good. And there was a shortage of everything and prices were high and foreign enemies were still hounding and controlling them. And life was just full of a lot of struggles and a lot of problems. So Israel asked, would you please explain to us, Lord, exactly how it is that you love us? And throughout the book of Malachi, the Lord fires, excuse me, Israel fires questions like these at the Lord. And the Lord usually responds by pointing out how Israel doesn't get it. He points to their lack of faithfulness to him. He points to their lack of attentiveness to him. He points to their lack of care about devotion to him. You know, if, if you're going to put God on trial, make sure you're at least walking with him. Make sure that you're worshiping and seeking him or this or else you might find that the, the case is turned around towards you. Well, the name Malachi means literally my messenger, which is a pretty good name uh, to have if you're going to be a prophet for the Lord. Malachi was the one charged with speaking for the Lord. He was God's representative. He was his counsel, if you will. We know nothing about Malachi. We know nothing about his background. We know nothing about where he was from, uh, where he lived, where he shopped, his golf handicap. We know nothing about him. And as Malachi answered for the Lord before questioning people, he was faced with just this wall of apathy and indifference. He spoke of faith to a people whose faith and religion had become very humdrum, who had become very lackadaisical in their observance of their faith and of practice to the Lord. And Malachi, quite frankly, had an uphill task in defending God. And Israel wants to know, Lord, how have you loved us? And the Lord begins his defense by reminding them of Jacob and Esau. Now, those of you who might have grown up in Sunday school or Bible readers, maybe you remember the story of those twin boys, Jacob and Esau. You find it back in Genesis 25. Uh, They are the sons born to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the son of Abraham, through whom the promise of God is coming into this world. Now, hang with me here. Because uh, we've got to take somewhat of a detour. 
to deal with Jacob and Esau. But then we'll get back to the main highway, I promise you, okay? Hang with me. The first of these twin boys to be born was Esau. The second to be born was Jacob. Jacob was born and he had, it said, his hand was grabbing Esau's heel. That's what Jacob means. He who grabs the heel, which in Hebrew idiom was a way of saying he's a deceiver. Watch out in the way we would say uh, he, he kept his fingers crossed or he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. That's what Jacob means. Well, the boys grow up. Esau becomes a skillful hunter, loves to go in the outdoors. Jacob is a homeboy, likes to stay at home, learns to cook. Esau, being the firstborn, is heir to the blessing, the birthright of father Isaac. The birthright would go to the first son. The birthright was the place of privilege, the place of leadership, the the position of honor. You would get the inheritance. You had the, the responsibility, and all that was good. You want the birthright. Well, one day Esau comes in from hunting and he's been out several days and he's just famished and he sees Jacob, brother Jacob has cooked a wonderful stew and he can just smell it. And he says, would you give me some of that? And Jacob, and this is the type of guy he was, he was a conniver. And he said, I'll give you some if you sell me your birthright. Well, Esau kind of flippantly says, hey, I'm starving and what good is a birthright if you're going to die of starvation anyway? You can have it. And upon Jacob's request, Esau swears an oath to Jacob that, yes, he will get the birthright. If you go on to read the story through the chapters of Genesis, we find that Jacob ends up stealing and conniving to get the birthright from Esau. Life goes on. The years pass. A lot happens. But to make a long story short, Jacob has an encounter one night with God. And in that encounter, God names him, renames him from Jacob to Israel. And Jacob is the one from whom the whole nation of Israel comes. From Esau comes a nation called Edom, the Edomites, who become perennial enemies of Israel and in the ways of the Lord. They're always hostile to the ways of the Lord. The Edomites are not good in the Bible. Wherever you read about the Edomites, it's not good. It's not good when they show up. So from Jacob comes the very chosen people of God because... Jacob was chosen by God. In answering that question, and here I get back now to the highway, how have you loved us? The Lord says, he appeals to Jacob and Esau, and he says, I have loved Jacob, who is Israel, who is you who are questioning me. And I I hated, I rejected Esau. You see, God chose Jacob from the beginning to be the blessed one and Esau to be the rejected one. We know Israel today. We always have been, always will be God's chosen people. Now we think, oh, but this is harsh. God chooses some people and he doesn't choose. He even says he hates Esau. He rejects Esau. How fair is that? This is harsh. The choosing of God, the election of God, we sometimes call it. The fact that God chooses some, elects some, and doesn't choose others, it runs right through the Bible. And God never explains it. He never justifies that choosing. It's a mystery. But his choosing of Jacob slash Israel is a part of his purpose. And it, def- and it defies explanation. And the thing is this. It is meant to be a sign of his love. 
choosing somebody is meant to be a sign of his love. And it works like this. God chose Israel to be a special possession. And part of the purpose was that when people saw Israel, the way Israel lived, their relationship to the Lord, the way they loved, the way they, everything they did, that people would become more aware of the Lord God and attracted to the Lord and believe in the Lord. And the Lord wanted Israel to be his representative. We read the whole Old Testament and largely the whole Old Testament is about how Israel has failed to do this. They have not honored. They have not obeyed God. So it was from Israel that the father brought the son, the Messiah, the anointed one to fulfill what Israel did not do. One of the things Jesus said to his disciples is this when he called them, he said. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to bear fruit, to bear much fruit. That kind of encapsulates what God had always wanted from the nation and his people of Israel. In Romans, Paul writes this. The apostle writes that God has predestined and he has foreknown some people to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Now, the doctrine of God choosing and electing some and not electing others always been problematic for people, always been problematic for everybody. We're not going to solve it this morning. Can't solve it this morning. It's a tension. But in Malachi, the Lord makes clear, I chose Jacob. I didn't choose Esau. And the point of this theological reality of God's election is being chosen is a sign of God's love. Because you know what? No one can make it with God's love. And no one can make it with God. No one. No one's worthy to belong to God. No one is worthy to be favored by him. You don't qualify for God's team by your skill or your ability. Either God chooses you to be right with him or or he doesn't choose me. It's got to be his choice. I mean, why? And and then why should God choose anyone? Why should he favor or pour blessings upon anyone? Do we have some kind of right to God's love? Are we entitled to good things? You know, sometimes people say, and it's a good question, I say this. Why do bad things happen to me? The unspoken assumption, though, in that question is that I'm a good person and only good things should happen to me because I'm a good person. How do you know? How do you know we aren't rebellious people and maybe deserve bad things? Why not ask, why do good things happen to me? Why do I have all the blessings and the good in my life that I do? If we are maybe a sinful, rebellious people and in our free will that God still gives us. And in our free will, we choose against God. Then isn't it evidence of his love that he would choose us at all, though we might be rotten to the core, messed up against his purposes, that he would that we would be objects of his love and his grace and his mercy. It's why Paul says, you know what, we can't boast. We don't have one ounce of pride in our standing with God because we didn't do any of it. He did it all. It's solely by his love and his grace in Jesus Christ, his son. Now, I don't want to get into some theological heaviness. I mean, it's the middle of July and it's hot. But this whole Jacob Esau thing is what God uses to present his case for love for his people, Israel. 
And even when the Edomites, from whom Esau came, even when they began to prosper and they began to boast and say, hey, look at us, we're going to rebuild, the Lord never let them do that. He always cast them down. But Israel was always blessed. Israel was favored. God called them into a relationship with him. He didn't do that with anybody else. God led them, he freed them from slavery in Egypt. He intervened in history on their behalf like he did for no other people. He led them through the wilderness and protected them and fed them. He gave them his law. When they were weary, he upheld them. When they were, when, when they were sucked dry, he restored them. When they felt that they had nothing to live for and they were unfaithful, he loved them. You know, love is what Israel's history is all about. Even the discipline that God showed them was for their good. And the Lord paid attention to them and watched over Israel in a way that he did with no one else, including Esau. Yes, and yet God is put on trial by Israel and they say, how have you loved us? What have you done for us? These are words of a self-centered, crabby people. That's what they are. And as time has passed, they've become too familiar with God. And they become complacent. And they become blind to his love. Israel has taken God's love for granted. And I think churches and Christians today can also be blind to this love. I mean, how many of us in the smallest difficulty, in the smallest hardship that comes our way, we call God on the carpet and say, you don't love me. We sit in our middle to upper class American comfort, born into the most privileged people that have ever lived with more food than we can ever dream of, with really good health and then a vast array of resources. If our health declines, we are able to love and to know love, to enjoy beauty and to see beauty. We have tremendous opportunities of education, of vocational gratification, of leisure, and we accuse the Lord, don't we? You don't love me. Because it's not all going my way. Even when life hurts and it deals us tremendous blows, do we not have a God who comes to us in love in those times and many times through other people? He sends people our way to support us, to pray for us, to love us, and he brings comfort and hope. And Paul reminds us in Romans, he says, it doesn't matter what comes, life or death, Nothing else that can be thrown against us or come our way can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Yet it is so much easier, isn't it, to complain about God's goodness. How presumptuous, how entitled we can be. And John writes this. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the kind of love we are talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, because we didn't, but he loved us. And he sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and damage and all the damage we've done to our relationship with God. God literally put himself on the hook of human suffering to save us from hell, from its wrath and from ultimate death and to give us life. And what more could he give? What more could he give? Thomas Merton, some years ago, wrote, 
Psychologists have had a pretty rough, some pretty rough things to say about the immaturity and narcissism of love in our marketing society, in which it is reduced to a purely egotistical need that cries out for immediate satisfaction or manipulates others more or less cleverly in order to get what it wants. But the plain truth is this, love is not a matter of getting what you want. Quite the contrary. The insistence on always having what you want, on always being satisfied, on always being fulfilled, makes love impossible. To love, you have to climb out of the cradle where everything is about getting and grow up to the maturity of giving without concern for getting anything special in return. Love is not a deal. It is a sacrifice. It is not marketing. It is a form of worship. Or when we come to worship, do we come only to get or do we also come to give? And we can have words about God's love right up there on the screen and maybe nothing but a mumble comes from our mouths. Our hearts can be so far away when speaking about our love. You know, why does this short little book of Malachi begin with a message on God's love? Maybe it's a warning. Maybe it's a warning because Israel, like churches today, developed a tremendous sense of complacency in its belief about God's love. And while Israel might have a sense of entitlement, because after all, they were chosen. Esau was not. You know, the whole point of God's election is this, for God's love to come to the whole world, to the Edoms and to the others, even who would oppose God. For God so loved, it says the world. That was his plan all along. I want to love the world. Jesus came for the world. It is the world he wants to save. With choosing comes great accountability because we're not chosen to spend God's love on ourselves, but to spend it on showing it to others that they will be drawn to him. Let me close with this. Let me close with the very first words Malachi speaks. It says, you'll see, an oracle. Those words can also be translated in the biblical Hebrew very well, a burden. A burden. The meaning of the word burden means that God, the Lord, carries something on his heart that is unresolved. God's love for his people and this world have been a burden from the very beginning. And when we read the story of God, the whole story of God throughout the Bible, we find that his love for us seems to have given him nothing but sorrow and grief. Grief over human hearts that have rejected him and gone wrong. Grief over the disbelief of his people. Grief over the rebelliousness of his children. Grief over the hardness of people's hearts. Until finally that grief is all gathered up as it must have been in his weeping. As he saw his son on the cross. And yet, before a cynical people who haul him into court, God defends himself with just this one word of compassion. I have loved you. And I love you still. His unquenchable love for you, for me, for Israel, for the church, for all people. That is his burden. And he bears it. Amen.